Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast on animal studies. I'm Akash Andachi, host of the channel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Marissa Bass, who will speak about her book, Insect Artifice, Nature and Art in the Dutch Revolt, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. Dr. Bass is Associate Professor of Northern European Art at Yale University. Dr. Bass, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Akash. It's a pleasure to be here. I think it would be beneficial for our listeners if we began our discussion by introducing Joris Hofnagel, but I would like to touch on a clarification you make early on in the book, namely that while the study is anchored by Hofnagel and the Four Seasons, this is not a monograph. Rather, the artist and his oeuvre channel a larger world of thought and experience, and at this time in the Netherlands, there was an impulse to counter the destruction of war through a productive fever of scribbling, versifying, and chronicling. I thus wondered if you could present Hofnagel in context of the geopolitics of his age and what you refer to as the plights and pursuits of many of his contemporaries. Absolutely. That's a great first question. Um, I first want to say that, you know, I, I came to the study of this artist, Joris Hufnahl, who was born in Antwerp in what is now Belgium in 1542. He died in 1600s, so sort of right on the edge of the 17th century. I first came to him because he is the maker of incredibly beautiful art. And this book is really meant at its heart to foreground the incredible miniatures uh, that he produced in watercolor and gouache and gold over the course of his life as an essentially self-taught artist. And uh, that aim is then combined with a larger aim that is reflected in the title of the book, Nature and Art in the Dutch Revolt, to understand Hufnahl as a witness to his times and to sort of understand what compelled him to make these incredibly beautiful, delicate, meticulous miniatures of the natural world. And to answer that question, I had to think about what was going on in his moment. And Hufnagel, um, as I said, was born in Antwerp. He was born to a merchant family. Um, and he, as a result, was educated, um, as was common for the sort of upper echelons of the mercantile world in Antwerp sent to university in France. So here's somebody who comes from a commercial background, who has um, an education that not everyone in his time would have had, certainly not most artists. Um, and uh, he, he enters the world in an era of prosperity for the Netherlands, the region where he was born. And he sees his world shift completely, not unlike the kind of shift we're seeing in the world around us today, um, a shift that happens because of um, religious strife. So this is the moment when 
Um, Protestantism is really taking hold in the Netherlands. This upsets uh, King Philip II, who is the ruler of Spain and who's um, who through his sort of Habsburg lineage had come to be the ruler of the Netherlands as well, um, who is staunchly Catholic. Um, and meanwhile, the Netherlands is being so the Netherlands is sort of has this mounting uh, interest in Protestantism. It's being ruled by this Catholic king from afar who doesn't even speak their language. The Netherlands is not a place that is used to imperial rule whatsoever. So suddenly um, the kind of Philip's attempt to curb Protestantism in the Low Countries um, results in him spending troops to the region, um, trying to uh, uh, you know, prosecute what he understands to be heretical faith. Um, this upsets the economy. It upsets the sort of political norms of the region. And this is what Hufnachl is living through early in his career. And a crucial aspect of that um, is that um, art itself is under threat because radical Protestants believe that the Catholics are corrupt, um, not only in their ideology, but also in their emphasis on the materiality of religion. And the Netherlands is full of incredibly beautiful altarpieces, sculptures that were produced over the course of its Catholic history um, that get attacked um, in, in events of iconoclasm, especially in the year 1566. Again, so now we can imagine Hufnahl in his early 20s, this merchant seeing the kind of cultural heritage that he's grown up with sort of destroyed and questioned before his eyes. Um, all the while sort of being someone who's engaging with art on the side. So it's the story of this person who's really a polymath, who's a, who's a reader, who's a maker of images, who's a merchant, so who understands the world through all these different lenses, also somebody who travels very widely because of his mercantile career. And that's something we can come back to, Akash, when we look at, um, talk a little bit more about his art in particular, um, who sees uh, his world utterly changed, um, all, you know, within the space of a few years. And the breaking point is really um, in 1576, when Spanish troops are occupying um, have been occupying Antwerp for some time, trying to keep the peace. And they're frustrated because they're not being paid by the Spanish. And so they mutiny and they start plundering the city of Antwerp and targeting wealthy mercantile families like Hufnachels. And his entire family fortune, according to our earliest sort of biographical source on Hufnachel, is taken by the Spanish. And at this point, it's really a kind of that's, that's the end point for Hufnahl in terms of his life in Antwerp. And he becomes one of many individuals um, in the creative and cultural world of Antwerp who flee the city and go elsewhere in Europe. And his travels take him um, to Italy. They take him to the courts of Germany, where suddenly he begins the second career as an artist because of the astonishingly beautiful miniatures um, that um are represented in, in my book and uh, eventually ends up at the court of Prague um, in Vienna, where he works um, in his final years for one of the greatest patrons of the late 16th, early 17th century, the Emperor Rudolf II. So this is a really sort of complicated trajectory. And it's one of the things that makes Hufnahl an incredible witness, um, not just to nature, but to a moment of radical upheaval in early modern Europe. And so the book is kind of layered around at its center 
you know, these beautiful works of art that represent a kind of early engagement with, you know, what we would now understand to be natural history and biology. Um, and those are, you know, um, embraced by the kind of story that we can, we can unfold by following Hufnachl's career and trajectory and the kind of networks, um, both politically and culturally, in which he participated. Thank you for, for explaining that. I, I'd like to maybe uh, we'll now turn a little bit to some of these works. And um, at many points throughout the book, we're reminded of how superficially small things can hold immense meanings. And chapter one discusses Hufnagel's literary and visual mottos uh, in this regard and looks to the significance of inscriptions in the margins. And, and later on, you mention how Images raise questions far better than they give answers. And in speaking of images as instruments, note that they were employed in conjunction with other arts, such as written scholarship. Um, could you discuss Hofnagel's mediums, namely miniatures, and, and their relation to his study of the natural world and, and insects in particular? Absolutely. So first, I mean, one of, uh, I, I want to try to sort of uh, help our listeners understand what these miniatures look like. Um, so you have to imagine holding in your hands uh, books on delicate parchment, uh, books that are really designed to be held in the hand. So a kind of book that's the size you could read in bed, like a paperback novel today, um, except made out of this costly material and painted each miniature um, you know, in particularly in the four elements manuscripts that are the sort of centerpiece of Hufnagel's career and the manuscripts that he works on across the whole period of his life from, you know, the, the, the moment of upheaval in Antwerp that I was just discussing until his death. So you open these, these, these volumes and you see these ovals that are painted in gold and inside of them are representations of animals from um, the kind of four elemental kingdoms. So you have a book of mammals, you have a book with, with reptiles, you also have a book of fish and sea creatures, and you have a book of birds, and then a book of insects under the category of fire, which is an interesting classification that we can maybe talk about later. And uh, so within the ovals, you have these depictions of these animals and insects, also plants, seashells, um, and they're depicted with, you know, the tiniest brush in watercolor and gouache that is carefully layered. Um, you see sort of almost no imperfection um, in some of the representations of insects. There are even actual insect wings that Hufnahol pasted to the page. And then alongside those pasted wings would paint his own representation of a wing of the same insect species which is a kind of tour de force way of getting us to think about, you know, to what extent an artist can get so close to this kind of exacting representation of nature. Um, and the, the animals and the insects and the fishes and the birds, but particularly the insects are represented on the page, sometimes in very elaborate compositions, sometimes in landscapes, sometimes um, as isolated specimens on the page that are arranged in sort of um, symmetries or, you know, uh, relationships, sometimes almost as even if they're talking to each other. And then framing these very delicate miniatures are texts, Latin texts. There are almost over a thousand Latin texts across the four volumes of the four elements alone. And this is only one of the manuscripts that Hufnachl illuminated over the course of his career. 
And these texts refer to passages from the Bible. They refer to classical sources. They refer to contemporary sources. Some of them are poems written by Hufnachl's friends. Um, and all of these are done in Hufnachl's hand and his very sort of careful handwriting. So the experience, the material experience of Hufnachl's works is one um, of incredible attention. You sort of feel the attention and the labor on the part of the artist, and they also command one's attention. They immediately register as images that you can't understand immediately, that you have to sit with. You sort of have to hold them, hold these volumes in your hand and think with them. Um, and that's really crucial to, you know, the 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 quote that you that you gave Akash about you know that images provide questions far better than they give answers. It's a it's a, not an intuitive idea for us, um, you know, in our present moment, coming from the perspective of how we think of scientific illustration, which is as diagrammatic. So when we look at a scientific illustration, say an anatomical diagram in Gray's Anatomy, um, that image is meant to provide information to us about a part of a body and it will be meticulously labeled. And it's meant to um, provide an answer to what is this muscle? What is this ligament? You know, what is this vein? And that's not the kind of image that, that Hufnachl made. So even though his miniatures unfold and contain an incredible body of knowledge about the animal and insect kingdoms um, and show, particularly in the case of the birds and the insects, his close attention to study of these creatures from the life, many of which had not been studied before. So even though they embed all of this information, they are not labeled, this is, you know, a scarab beetle and this is a cricket beetle. They are not um, presented, the, the visual material is not presented in such a way that we're meant to think of it as something that we use to answer a question. On the contrary, the relationship between the text and image in these volumes is meant to open up questions and associations for us about how we relate to the natural world, how we understand what it means to be human relative to the animal. Um, this kind of complex relationality that is, you know, something that is part of sort of contemporary theory about human-animal relationships today, but is already very strongly there in, in Hufnahol's way of thinking with the animal world. So it's important to think about that text-image relationship, too, for Hufnahol's personal mottos that you mentioned, um, because he was also someone who was very clever, a very sort of punning, witty fellow. And he devised several personal mottos over the course of his career that speak to this idea of himself not as this kind of all-knowing, you know, encyclopedic mind, but as somebody who was really a searching mind, someone who is really trying to understand his place in the world. Um, and the, the 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 sort of epitome of this is his motto in Latin, natura sola magistra, which means nature, um, his only teacher. And that really encompasses the way that he thought with the animal world, um, which is that he is learning from nature rather than taking the position of being someone who is an expert on nature and explaining it to us. I, I have to say to, to our listeners that this is definitely one of those books that it, it's it's such a pleasure to read it. And I can say that without any reservations, but it's also the, the images are, are wonderful and to, to uncover them as you read, it's 
you, you've laid them out beautifully and right in the centerfold. And it's, uh, they're these gorgeous miniatures. And, um, now you, you did just touch upon, um, both Nagel's, uh, wit and his personality. And if we could turn for a minute to his, his own being and, and, and what makes him kind of unique as an artist and in, in his context, um, to build, uh, building on his unique approach to the study of, of the natural world, um, I wonder if we could discuss how he positioned himself in relation to nature. Um, when compared to some of his influences mentioned in the book, such as Conrad Gessner, uh, Hofnagel seems to position himself at more of a distance from his animal subjects and communicates his findings with slightly more nuance and less of an intent to distill or own or, or master the natural world. And the meaning that he does derive from nature and which he communicates through his works um, suggests a more personal relationship as well. It is noted at one point that some of his miniatures and drawings could truly belong to nobody except their intended recipient. Could you expand upon who the four elements were intended for and how Hufnagel drew upon the natural world and its animals to portray his own history? Yes, that's a great question, Akash. Um, and I should also say, you know, that I, I do think that the, the reason to, uh, uh, the, the appeal of the book is so much about the kind of full, uh, the, the full page facsimiles at the center of the volume. And I can take no credit for that. I, I wholly credit my, um, publisher and editor at Princeton University Press for making this such a beautiful book. It wouldn't work without the images. Um, so I think, um, there were there are several layers to your question. Um, one is sort of Hufnagel's relationship with nature relative to other um, in, um, scholars and thinkers who engage with nature in his 16th century moment. And you mentioned Conrad Gesner, who is sort of understood to be the father of natural history in many ways. And beginning in 1551, he started to publish um, this multi-volume work called The History of Animals. Um, that is uh, remarkable in, in its sort of encyclopedic nature. So you read an entry on the cow and you will read a description of the cow and of its habitat. And then you will read about all of these kind of um, all the sayings associated with the cow since antiquity and sort of adages and, and ways of understanding the cow, maybe references to the cow in the Bible. Um, so it, it, ext- it extends much beyond what we would think of um, being part of a kind of description or classificatory description of an animal. And and Gesner really cared about images too. So this is important for Hufmahol because Gesner's treatises are illustrated with woodcut prints, um, woodcut being a medium that allowed for the the greatest number of, of, of good reproductions of the images within um, a, a volume that was going to be widely circulated. Um, and that's not to say that everybody could afford to buy Conrad Gesner's History of Animals in the 16th century, because it's a, it's a large book and it would have been expensive. Um, but enough people were able to purchase it that it really made an impact. And Gesner had grand plans. He wanted to do a volume on insects too, um, but he unfortunately died of the plague in 1565 and left a pile of um, drawings and notes for other people to sort of wade through over the subsequent centuries. Uh, and so Gesner, and I would add to that, um, another great sort of naturalist and, and student of nature in Italy, uh, Ulisse Aldrovandi, who was based in Bologna, 
both Gesner and Aldrovandi were people who had what they described as museums um, that were filled with notes, but also particularly images that they collected, um, maybe some that they made themselves, maybe some made um, that they commissioned, others sent to them or that they collected from other artists representing the animals in the world. Um, and their goal was really to publish these in printed books and disseminate them to a wide audience. Hufnagel benefited from such publications immensely. And he, in fact, particularly in the volumes of the four elements devoted to animals um, and, and birds and fishes, he relied on such printed images as his models and sort of um, represented them in his own compositions and in color. Um, as I've already mentioned, he didn't always do that. Um, when, when there were no models, he, he, he represented something on his own and for the first time. So it's interesting to see him drawing on this tradition, but at the same time, his, his, his aim is in totally different because he chose to use the medium of manuscript. And when you're making manuscripts in an era of print, so this is a moment when books are being widely published Individual prints are being sold everywhere. There's a, there's a market for them. Um, his choice to make a manuscript is really interesting. And this is one of the places we can see his project of image making tie back to the political context of his time. Because once again, Hufnahol witnessed this era of inquisition where people were being um, persecuted for their religious beliefs in his hometown of Antwerp. And also anyone found to have any images that might be understood to be heretical were also persecuted. So he had this idea of um, manuscript as a kind of private space, a kind of space for um, intellectual and um, interpersonal exchange. And that is really... Uh, the profound difference between uh, his works and those of the natural historians like Gesner, who were really trying to get their information published and out in the kind of pan-European milieu. That also impacts the nature of the images that Hufnachl makes. So he may borrow a representation of a monkey from Gesner, but then what he does with that monkey is so profoundly different. So once again, rather than sort of labeling the monkey and, and saying this is such and such a species, this is where it lives, um, he's associating the monkey with ideas of imitation or mimicry, um, with playfulness, um, with sort of characteristic, characteristics and qualities that are also associated with humankind. So the question he's always asking is, what can we learn from looking at this animal about ourselves or about the kind of complex moment that we live in when so much is changing? And um, that is really fundamental too to understanding who would have seen these incredibly um, meticulous manuscripts and stunning manuscripts that Hufnahl spent, you know, as it seems, almost three decades of his life producing. Who would have seen these things? Who was he making them for? And it's really, you know, if we sort of step back and think about the history of art history, the field uh, in which I write and teach, it's really striking that art history almost always sort of wants to deal 
with things that are big, things that are in the public eye. If you go, you know, a, a traditional survey of art history is going to give you big, major paintings and sculptures and buildings um, that have a huge impact. It's going to give you very little in the way of the kind of art that Hufnahol made, delicate miniatures on paper or parchment. Um, uh, but these are works, too, that had an audience that was really intentional. And in a way, these works, even though they're private and were probably seen by only a few of Hufnahol's closest friends with whom he was corresponding, even from abroad, with whom he, um, he was exchanging images um, and, you know, and also, um, you know, commissioning them to write little poems for these manuscripts. Um, those are really, that's really seems to have been the primary audience for these works. It's, it's really meant for him and for his colleagues who are trying to understand their, their particular moment. And once we see that they're thought spaces, they are just as valuable for understanding the historical moment in which they were made as, you know, a monumental painting made for a public building at the same time, or a monumental painting made for one of the courts um, in which Hufnahol was employed. So one way I describe the manuscripts um, is as, you know, in terms of their potentially broader public is that these private sort of interpersonal manuscripts that he shared with friends who um, also um, had fled Antwerp or even some who had stayed um, and were trying to weather weather the kind of crisis of the moment. Um, they also served as a kind of calling card for Hufnahol when he was traveling abroad to sort of demonstrate his ability as an artist. So the other people we can imagine who may have seen these manuscripts would have been the patrons who ended up hiring him. And of course, they saw these very elaborate manuscripts and they didn't see a thought space. They said, oh my gosh, this guy can make incredible miniatures. I want him to il illuminate something for me. And th then he illuminated prayer books and calligraphic manuscripts for them that were not so sort of um, discursive as the four elements, which is a project that was sort of of his own creation and, um, you know, stemmed from his own intentionality. They're much more sort of um, expressly virtuosic. They're much more sort of oriented toward complementing um, and affirming the kind of status and perceived, you know, and, and knowledge of their elite patrons. So another thing that we can see across Hufnahol's larger oeuvre is his awareness of audience, his sort of deafness at navigating a difficult sort of cultural moment and a difficult life, you know, because he had to keep moving throughout his life um, by responding to different audiences. And the last point um, with that is, in fact, that his his son, um, Jakob Hufnahol, was also an artist and toward the end of his father's life um, produced a series of prints published in 1591 um, called Architects, Ar Archetypes and Studies after his father, um, in which he published in print um, some of the most uh, sort of notable representations of insects that that his father had produced over the course of his career. And those prints um, were extremely popular because they disseminated now not just to um, patrons and, um, you know, patrons in the courtly context, but also to artists and even to natural historians 
really incredible and unprecedented models for representing animals and insects in particular. So this is obviously something that Joris Hufnachl, Joris the father, sanctioned because he also understood that he'd created something that other people wanted to see. So we have these kind of different arenas in which he operated, um, but it begins um, from this very sort of private and personal space of reflection and self-reflection. It's fascinating. And some of these calling cards and the thought spaces that he's created with with colleagues and, and people that are sharing some of his experiences, they, um, they at times form these allegorical representations of their experiences um, kind of demonstrated through these animal characters. Uh, I'm thinking of these monument of friendship drawings that you include or there's a prayer inscription above a depiction of Antwerp that he uh, makes that reads, uh, I'm become a sparrow all alone on the housetop. Um, I was wondering if you uncovered anything during your research regarding Hoeknagel's attitude towards uh, human animal hierarchies or, or human exceptionalism, perhaps. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I first of all, I my absolute favorite um, works by Hufnagel are these works that he called monuments of friendship. I think it's a, a, a genre that we should revive. Um, and it's such a counterintuitive for us, especially in the present moment, way to think about what a monument is, because these monuments of friendship were not large and monumental. They are works on parchment, very delicate. So delicate, in fact, that Hufnagel would paste them to pieces of wood before he sent them to his friends in the mail to ensure that they didn't get bent or damaged and that they would be preserved over time. And these um, are really beautiful representations of animals and insects often posed in dialogue and precisely, Akash, as you say, with sort of allegories about knowledge um, and sort of um, using nature to combat ignorance. So understanding nature is a means both to get closer to God, to understand one's place in the larger cosmos and to uh, achieve humility relative to the larger cosmos, and also to take refuge from the kind of troubles of this um, moment, again, of so much uh, trouble and uncertainty that was surrounding him. Um, and again, you know, these are objects, they're really objects um, that you could hold in your hand. And the idea of a monument of friendship being something that Hufnahal labored over and made to send to his friend from afar. And some of these we know were sent to people who Hufnahal never saw again. They died before he would ever see them again. So it's almost like he's giving himself, uh, sending a piece of himself with these, um, with these monuments of friendship um, to his friends who are now far away. So uh, there's that, that idea of, you know, targeted allegory is really interesting. Um, also interesting is that among his friends and colleagues with whom he was exchanging these drawings and miniatures are um, other scholars and, and artists who are writing quite explicitly about this idea of, you know, human exceptionalism being an untenable position in the present moment. Um, and really saying that, oh, you know, everybody thinks the best thing is the biggest thing, um, or, you know, uh, the elephant is the most remarkable, you know, creature in, in the natural kingdom. But let's look at the insects, because these insects live such complex, uh, sophisticated social and intellectual lives of their own. 
Um, and they're incredibly diverse and they really challenge the notion that humans are the most complex creatures that God ever made. And that idea, you know, is something that shows up both among, um, in the writings of, of Hufnahol's colleagues, um, but also shows up in later natural history treatises. So the first printed treatise on insects doesn't, it doesn't get published until the 17th century. Um, but it, the writing of it began during Hufnachl's lifetime, and it makes precisely that argument. Um, so it's really impossible to separate the kind of um, impulse to doubt the exceptionalism or the uniqueness or superiority of humankind. Um, it's impossible to separate that impulse from the kind of um, radical change that Hufnachl and his colleagues experienced in the 16th century, you know, which was really the turning point um, toward a kind of uh, the modern worldview that we still inhabit, you know, a shift away from um, a kind of hierarchical understanding of the world um, toward a more, you know, destructured, uncertain um, and questioning way of understanding our relationship to the world around us. That said, I mean, the idea of human exceptionalism also goes back to antiquity. So Hufnagel and his colleagues were also picking up on ideas that they found in, in classical authors and in, in medieval texts as well. Um, I opened the book actually with um, one of uh, Hufnagel's contemporaries who was deeply engaged with the first book of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Um, where Ovid describes the origins of the world and, and he describes, um, you know, that uh, the difference between the human and the animal world. Um, and it's, it's one of those moments where, um, the you know, Hufnachl's contemporaries read this description of how humankind is unique in having the impulse to look up toward the heavens, to look up toward what we would now, you know, in a, in a Christian context would be understood to be God. And, and, you know, Hufnachl's colleagues were like, well, wait a minute, you know, um, how unique are we? I mean, all of these creatures were part of God's creation. Um, and so this relativity is really, um, is really the kind of shift that happens in the 16th century, a relativity um, in the understanding of the relationship between uh, the human and the natural world that, you know, stays with us still. And this shift that, that's happening in the 16th century, this must tie into developments in entomology at the time and microscopy, which I believe developed, you, you note, in, in the 17th century. Um, so I, I wondered how, how all this relates to Hofnagel's works and, and what makes Ignis, this book of fire, really stand out among the volumes of, of the four elements and, and these insects that, that are so complicated and so marvelous and so small. How do they come to hold a pride of place among all of his other animal subjects? Yes, um, that's so. The we circled around this insect volume several times now. I mean, if if there's something that people know about Joris Hufnachel, and let's be honest, Joris Hufnachel is not a household name. So if you haven't heard of him, uh, it's not like you've been missing something profound here. Um, you know, he's he's very little known, but in the sort of small circle of the of the academic world that I inhabit, if anybody had heard of Hufnahol, um, it was probably because of his representations of insects. Um, and this has to do in part with the fact that they had a kind of 
um, reception in the history of art history because of that print series I mentioned earlier produced by his son. And so if you look at 17th century still life paintings, um, representations of sort of bouquets of flowers, which are, you know, very common and popular in the 17th century, and you look at the insects represented in those um, still life paintings, you will find tons of insects that are just co-opted from those prints that Hufnahol's son produced. And even 17th century natural history treatises that are, you know, seem to be part of this kind of empirical project borrow representations of insects from Hufnahol. This is even after the advent of the invention of the microscope, which happens in the 17th century. And you know, fuels a more detailed um, examination of insects and, and the sort of rise of modern entomology from the perspective of studying um, their reproduction, their structures, you know, the way that they work, um, the way that their bodies work. Um, and that's not something that Hufnahol could do. He did not have access to the microscope in the 16th century. Um, and he never could have anticipated that his images were to endure for so long as sort of um, as models for how to represent um, a diversity of insect specimens. Um, what he did was, you know, in some ways really simple, which is that he, um, in his travels around Europe, um, because he only really represents European insects, he uh, devised probably through, uh, you know, collaboration again with his network of colleagues, some of whom were also interested in insects and were engaged with the kind of remnants of, of Conrad Gesner's project to make an insect book. Um, and he figured out clearly um, somehow how to create and preserve insect specimens that he could represent them. Because obviously, if you're trying to represent a dragonfly, there's a beautiful miniature of a dragonfly on the cover of my book um, from Hupnahol's Ignis volume. Um, you can't have that dragonfly be alive. You have to somehow take a dead specimen and have it preserved in such a careful way um, that you preserve its delicacy and you can then represent it in the slow, laborious process of making a watercolor or gouache miniature. So what Hufnahol does is a kind of very simple impulse. He's going to make a book of insects. He doesn't have any visual models, so he has to make his own. But then what he does with it is not simple at all because one, another, kind, another artist, another individual might have done that and put a single insect on each folio of the manuscript and sort of labeled, this is a dragonfly and this is a beetle. Um, but Hufnahol created conversations across the, the specimens of the insect kingdom that he studied. Um, so he has miniatures where he's fascinated by insect metamorphosis. And I, I argue in the book that when he looks at insects, he sees not only nature's smallest and most complex creations and sort of manifestations of divine artifice, he also sees um, the potential for change being built into nature, the potential for transformation that is a kind of leitmotif of his entire career. Um, another of his personal mottos that I discuss in the first chapter of the book is um, the Latin motto, Dom Extendar, which means until I am forged, by which Hufmanachol meant um, quite literally that he was being beaten down. He was being beaten like a nail um, on an anvil by the kind of political and, and, and 
circumstances surrounding him and that he was undergoing a process of constant change and transformation to adapt to those circumstances. So there are moments where he represents individual insect species and he's showing us, you know, how a butterfly goes from uh, the larva to its kind of adult state. And he's showing us insects from different sides. Sometimes you flip from one folio to another in the manuscript and he'll show you the same insect flipping over from one folio to the next. So he's also interested in sort of reanimating these specimens on the page. And then there are moments, for instance, in his representation of the scarab beetle, which is an enormous um, beetle that was very common actually in Europe and especially in England where Hufmahl also spent time. Particularly the female scarab beetle is very large, which I, I, I enjoy, much larger than the male. Um, I mean, it's an insect that would take up the entire, your entire hand, um, a full, a full grown female scarab beetle. And he represents the scarab beetle on a pose exactly like that of another of um, the 16th century artists who engaged in nature study, the great German Renaissance artist Albrecht Dürer, who had made a miniature of the scarab beetle um, back in the early 16th century. And, and Hufnagel clearly knew that model. Um, but what's amazing about Hufnagel's scarab beetle is the way that he simultaneously references this idea of an artistic tradition in which he's participating, a kind of artistic engagement with the study of insects um, as sort of manifestations of divine artifice and sort of challenges to human artifice. And at the same time, Hufnagel shows us that he also studied a scarab beetle from life because the, the shadow underneath the scarab beetle in Hufnagel's miniature compared to that of Albert Dürer, who was a really fabulous artist, the shadow is so much more complex in depth um, uh, and, and changes of tone that he basically tells us with that shadow, without writing a single word on the page, that he was studying this thing from the life. And in some ways, he got it better than Durr. So there's this simultaneously, um, you know, sen there's simultaneous sense of humility toward the models of nature, models of divine artifice. And at the same time, Hufnagel's saying that he knew he was pretty good. Um, and there, you know, here's, here's the limit, sort of, he might be able to surpass an earlier Renaissance artist, um, but he's not going to be able to surpass God who created these things that are in some ways, he feels really still beyond his understanding, no matter how beautifully he represents them. There, um, there are a number of binaries which underpin the study of, of Hofnagel's works. And what you just mentioned about the dragonfly on the cover and 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 that faint shadow, it, you know, it's it's another example of something small having having a large meaning and and Hofnagel attempting to bring this insect to life. Um, it touches on another binary that, that I thought that we could briefly discuss, namely that of, of old and new. And I wondered how does Hofnagel, during his process of creation as well as his final product, simultaneously rejuvenate that which he is memorializing, uh, both in regards to his animal subjects as well as his home of Antwerp, which he often depicts? Thank you, Akash. That's a beautiful question um, and a very complex one. I mean, I should say, you know, once I fell in love with Hofnagel's images and started to learn more about him, I realized uh, just, you know, I, I think it's it's okay to admit, even as a, as a scholar, that I feel a tremendous kinship with Hufnagel um, as a thinker um, in the way that he engaged with 
his world and engage with the making of art um, because he is somebody who does care deeply, um, precisely as you've observed, someone who does really care deeply about the past, who's trying to look forward to imagine a future, um, you know, that he can't quite envision given the tremendous change surrounding him. But at the same time, he's really, he's interested in ancient texts. We have records um, that a, a German colleague of mine found in the libraries in, in Germany of um, him checking out books at the Munich court library, sort of reading all of these obscure, um, you know, what is it would seem to us very obscure sources um, in the process of producing um, manuscripts for the court. So he, he read voraciously. He was interested in the classical past. And this is something that I've written about. Um, I, I wrote about the kind of interest uh, in the classical past for um, my first book, which was on a, an artist from the early 16th century. And, you know, I think we can think about his understanding of, you know, old and new also in terms of Antwerp itself, which is a city that um, became a modern city in the early 16th century. I mean, its roads were redesigned to be grander. It was the kind of entrepot of 16th century Europe. It was the place people came to trade, to purchase art um, from all over Europe and even beyond. Um, it's the place where Albrecht Dürer, who I just mentioned, who made that image of the scarab beetle, um, you know, uh, visited in, in, in the 1520s and saw, you know, remarkable things um, from all over um, different parts of the world. So he's part of this city that is simultaneously progressive, but then he sees the kind of moment of iconoclasm and the disruption brought on by the Dutch revolt and this fight against Spanish imperial rule. And he sees so many things that he um, understood to be progress destroyed. And so how do you situate yourself in relationship to that? Um, there's a kind of longing that happens when something's gone that you always presume will be there. Um, that's certainly something, once again, that I think in our present moment, we can understand really well. I certainly never appreciated um, the privilege of visiting art museums so much until I was not able to go and visit them um, over the past few months um, here in the States. And so his, you know, his miniatures from late in his life clearly reflect his sort of um, thinking back to a past that has been lost, a, a historical moment in the history of the Netherlands, that a chapter that's closed, um, and, and thinking back to a place that he will never go back to. At the same time, as he's making his studies of the natural world, he's really pushing in a new direction. So, you know, there's a reason that in the 17th century, people um, like um, Swammerdam, who's one of the microscopists in the 17th century Netherlands, who's um, engaged in the study of the reproduction of insects and, and doing really radical work. Um, and, you know, he, um, you know, expresses his admiration for what Hufnahol did because Hufnahol was really pushing in a new direction. I mean, it's easy to look at Hufnahol's images and see the beginnings of a kind of empirical scientific representation. And we can see that in retrospect. And it's true, even though that's not what Hufnahol was trying to do. I mean, he made images that could function as scientific uh, representations of, of insect specimens at the end of the 16th century, having no idea that that 
is how they might be seen centuries later. And I think that's really fascinating. And that's the part um, that is um, where we need his historical context to understand these images in full, um, because we can represent, uh, appreciate them from one direction um, as in- innovative and, and forward moving. And at the same time, understand the ways that Hufnahal was using the making of them, the process of creating these images as a way of thinking about his own past, about the changes underway in his present, um, and, and sort of trying to imagine what the future um, for himself and his country and Europe at large might actually, might actually hold. I see. Dr. Bass, it was a true pleasure reading your book, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, may I ask if you intend to continue researching animals in, in your future work or, or at, some, at, at some other time? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you, Akash. It's been really a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm, I'm glad you asked because I actually, um, as I was finishing uh, the writing of this book, Insect Artifice, um, I, I was in Amsterdam um, on a fellowship at the Netherlands, Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study, and I went out for um, uh, a happy hour with three of my colleagues, and we discovered in the process that we all shared a love of shells. And so actually, uh, next year, I have a book forthcoming um, that's a co-authored book called Conchophilia, Shells, Art, and Curiosity in Early Modern Europe, that is all about sort of representation and collecting and engagement with shells in the period um, of the 16th through the 18th century. And I think it's going to be a really, really fun book. I I look very forward to reading it. Um, Well, thank you, Dr. Bass. And thank you to our listeners. This has been part of the Animal Studies podcast series um, on, uh, on the New Books Network. Dr. Bass's book is Insect Artifice, Nature and Art in the Dutch Revolts, and it'll be listed on our podcast page.